So happy Valentine's Day weekend, St. Paul's. Uh, Love is in the air. And I entitled my sermon today, The Heart of the Matter, in honor of St. Valentine. Have you ever paid attention to some of the uh, words that go along with the nursery rhymes that most of us grew up with? I mean, there's really no doubt we all ought to be in therapy. Seriously, seriously. If you've ever paid attention, rock-a-bye baby in the treetop. Why in the world is the baby in the treetop the first place? What kind of mama would do that? And when the wind blows, the cradle will rock. Where's daddy in all this? I mean, really? And when the bow breaks, the cradle will fall, and down will come baby and cradle and all. And that's supposed to be the lullaby to get me to go to sleep at night? (laughs) And then you got poor old Humpty Dumpty. I mean, the dude's just sitting on a wall. He falls off the wall, cracks his cranium open, and it's such a bad thing that all the king's horses and all the king's men can never put him back together again. And that's good for children to hear? And remember old poor old Mother Hubbard went to a cupboard just to get the dog a bone cupboard was bare, so she goes to the baker to get him some bread. And when she comes back, the poor dog was dead. I mean, really? And that's not bad enough. The story says she goes to the undertaker to buy him a coffin. And when she came back, that old dog was laughing. I mean, eerily coming back from the dead, it sounds like the walking dead. (laughs) Eggman dying and babies falling to the ground. Just to illustrate, all these nursery rhymes were meant to be shocking. They were meant to take shocking twists in the end and have unexpected outcomes, even if it wasn't good for children. So I'm going to just say to you today that the Sermon on the Mount would have been equally as shocking when Jesus preached to the Jews in Matthew chapter 5. That's what I want to share with you and look at today. Matthew chapter 5. If you have your scriptures, it would be great to turn there. Um, There are three points I want to draw out just briefly. One is Jesus' teaching today as God himself. He's teaching as if he were God himself, and he was. Second thing I want to point out, what does he say and why does he say it? What's the content? What does he say, why does he say it in the Sermon on the Mount? And then thirdly, what does he do about it? What does he do about it? So Jesus teaches as God, as God, okay? We've been moving through this sermon, and this Sermon on the Mount is one of the most challenging, richest sermons on morality, justice, and God's love that the world has ever known. Did you know that? In fact, Mahatma Gandhi, the Indian mystic and political leader in India, he almost became a Christian because of the power of the Sermon on the Mount, theologically rich and thoroughly authoritative. Remember, Jesus is not just making stuff up here. He's speaking as a mouthpiece from God. Remember the gospel writers, whenever Jesus would talk about something, it would say, and he spoke to them as one who had authority, as one with authority. And they kept drawing out the difference between him and the other religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. They taught the traditions of man, but Jesus taught as God himself. Later, In Matthew chapter 15, verse 9, he will talk about these same scribes and Pharisees and their teaching. And he says, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, and they teach as doctrine the precepts of man. Teach as doctrine the precepts of man. Man Man-made traditions. 
And yet Jesus speaks the wisdom of God today. In Epiphany, we celebrate the shining forth, the manifestation of Jesus in the world, particularly to the Gentiles. And John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is God. God's Word for the world. If you don't believe me that he thinks himself to be authoritative, look at verses 21 and 22. You have heard it said from on old that you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you, but I say to you. What is Jesus doing there? He's taking the Old Testament, Exodus 20, 13, and he's intensifying that Old Testament lesson on murder, and he's actually taking it a step farther. He gives it a shocking twist. You have heard it said, but I say to you, it wakes us up, it shocks us, it jolts us. That's what he's doing. Those Jewish people probably are thinking, that country bumpkin Jesus from Nazareth, who gave him the authority to reinterpret and intensify the very law of God from Exodus 20, 13? He could do it because he was God. But it was shocking, and it was penetrating, and it penetrated to the heart. And that's the heart that matters to Jesus. Why does Jesus say and do this? Because he wants your heart. And if you're here today, and you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, let me just tell you, Jesus wants your heart not your religion. He didn't care about religion. Jesus wants a relationship with you. Religion never changes people. Oh, they can put on a good show for the crowd, and then they go home from church, and they're the same old rotten people they were before. Religious people, they clean up nicely for church. They look the part, but in the end, their hearts remain far from God. That's religion. So get that, folks. God doesn't want your religion. He wants your heart. Last week, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, told us this. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds, remember, exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. What were they, what, what were they doing that was so wrong? Well, they looked good on the outside, but inside there was no depth or substance to their relationship with God. Later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will point them out, chapter 23, verse 27. He says, Woe to you, scribes and the Pharisees, you bunch of hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So imagine that image. It's a sparkling marble white tomb in the middle of that Middle Eastern sun, and it's glistening and beautiful on the outside. And yet you open up the door and all you smell is rotting flesh, dried up bones, and the stench of death. That's what Jesus is seeing in these Pharisees and these scribes. Oh, they got religion, but they didn't have the relationship. Jesus does this sermon, teaches this teaching to penetrate the human heart, to humble those who are prideful, to strip away any sense of self-reliance in your life, to totally wreck your self-righteousness. I think that's why Jesus began his sermon with, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, a right relationship with God, for they shall be satisfied. These scribes and these Pharisees, they were satisfied in their religiosity, in their good works, in their pompous piety, in their exquisite, exquisite clothing, their generous sums of money they would give to the temple. 
They had little room left for love of God and love of neighbor. Jesus said, I want your heart, not your religion. Look at verse 21. You still feel like you can be religious before Jesus and get to heaven? He said, you've heard from on old that you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you, anyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults, and this is an Aramaic word, it's called raka. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. Here's what Jesus is doing. Scribes, Pharisees, you think you're good religious people, right? You've not broken any of the big ten commandments, right? Haven't murdered, hadn't committed adultery. Check those off the list. He says, man, you don't even understand. Your heart is, is, hum, is prideful. Your heart needs to be stripped away of self-reliance. Your heart needs to be wrecked of its self-righteousness. Oh, you hadn't murdered anybody. You ever harbored murder in your heart for somebody by harboring anger towards them? Now you say, wait a minute. Jesus got angry, right? But here's the difference. Jesus is anger when he tossed out the money changers from the temple and said, you're a den of thieves and this is my father's house of prayer. Jesus did that for truth's sake, for love's sake. Jesus' anger was always rooted in truth and love. Jesus got angry at injustice, at sickness, at death, but Jesus always did it in a righteous way. Now, imagine your grandchild or your child's three years old. You keep telling them, don't go out into that busy highway. Don't go out there. And then you see them running out in the highway, and you burst out the door, and you grab them by the arm, and you're so angry, and you look at them. You're not, doing, you're not angry out of hatred. You're angry out of love, out of love. And so, yes, Jesus got angry. But the type of anger that this is, is when you have somebody who has harmed you in your life, and you inwardly rejoice at their sufferings. When you have somebody that's hurt you, and you don't extend a hand of grace and forgiveness, but you hold on to it, seething the whole time. When somebody has hurt you, and you are glad when you hear of their demise or their failures, that's what Jesus is talking about. You hold on to that anger, and you've already killed them in your heart. I know I've done that way too many times. I hadn't killed anybody physically, but I've done that. Whoever insults, look at verse 22. Insults his brother is liable. Now that word in the old King James is raka, raka. And they left it raka. Uh, they didn't translate it because it can't be translated well into English. They just left it there. You can read it. Um, but the idea here is that anyone is raka when you treat that person as nothing, as nothing. When you treat that person as a non-entity, a person that doesn't matter. This person is created by God, loved by God, a child of God, redeemed by Jesus Christ, given worth and dignity through the cross, and you treat them as nothing. When you see a person in need and you walk right by as though they were nothing, when you see somebody is hurting and you treat them as a non-entity and not a child of God. You ever done that? I've done that. I've walked by people in need and just looked the other way. That's raka. Jesus goes on to penetrate the human heart, the prideful sense that we all have to strip away our reliance and totally wreck our self-righteousness. Look at verses 27 and 28. You think you can still hold the mask of religion before God? You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. And look at how serious the, the wages of this is. Verses 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. Better to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it out. For it's better to lose one of your members than the whole body go into hell. If we take this seriously, friends, think about this uh, at swimsuit season on the Isle of Palms or Sullivan's Island. There are going to be a whole lot of blind, limping, one-handed people at that beach this summer. It's, it's shocking, the teaching. It's startling, the teaching. It's humbling, the teaching. And Jesus meant, meant to penetrate our hearts. The intent is to strike at the heart, the heart that matters. Not only does Jesus say that your righteousness has to exceed that of the, the Pharisees and scribes, but guess what? At the end of chapter 5, he said you've got to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Does that strip away your self-righteousness? It does mine. If you think that you can somehow impress God with your religion, your outward signs and devotions, it's not impressive. We can't do it. But Jesus did two things for us with regard to the law. Here's the deal. Anybody who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, you need to know it comes this way. There's a new stop sign on West Carolina. Uh, I don't really remember it's there until I get right up on it. I'm probably going to run it at some point until I get used to it. So when there's a law, a new stop sign, there are two responses. You can keep the law and stop at that stop sign and keep the law, or you run right through it, the blue lights come, and the officer gives you a nice gift, uh, a fine, you owe $100 or whatever it may be. So the bottom line is before the law, you either keep it righteously and fully, or you got to pay the price, you got to pay the penalty. Jesus did both of those things for you. He lived the life before the Father perfectly in righteousness. There was not a sin in Jesus. He completed and fulfilled the law in a way that we never could have ourselves. Last week, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I lived the perfect life you couldn't live. But I also died the death, which was the penalty for sin. I paid for you lawbreakers to have a relationship with the Father. And I want your heart, Jesus is saying. Jesus alone loved the Lord with all of his heart, mind, and soul. Jesus alone loved his neighbor fully as greater love than himself. He loved the children, the sick, the outcast, the poor, he loved them more than himself. He never passed by and said, Raka to you. You're meaningless. You're nothing. He lived the life perfectly before the Father, and he paid the price for lawbreakers like you and me. But that's not the only application. One more. Religion says, go and do these things. Go and be good. But it never gives you the power, the tools, or the equipment to get the job done. When you come to Jesus Christ, he treats you differently. He gives you the Holy Spirit that helps you to begin to reflect the glory of God. You're never going to fully live into the Sermon on the Mount. But if you've got the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you are the temple of the Spirit. And he begins to change your heart. 
and you begin to reflect more and more of the glory of God, to put away pornography, to begin to conquer lust in our lives, to treat everybody we meet not as a non-entity, but precious in God's sight, people for whom Jesus died to restore their dignity before the Father. The promise comes from Ezekiel 36. When you receive the Holy Spirit, here it is. I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit I'm going to put within you, God says. And I'll take away your old stony heart and I'll give you a heart that's precious, a heart of flesh. And I'll give it to you when the Spirit comes. That's the Father's promise. Jesus said last week in chapter 5, he said in the same way, let your light shine before others so that, not that you would get puffed up in your goodness, so that people will see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. It's about your heart. It's about a relationship with the Father. Back to my old friend Gandhi. He went to church on many occasions with Christian friends. And you know what he saw? He saw racism, and segregation, and mean-spiritedness. He saw the outward trappings of religion. It looked beautiful, but people whose heart were far from God. He saw people talking the talk, but not walking the walk. He loved Jesus' teaching, but he didn't like Jesus' people very much. In fact, Gandhi declared, and I quote, I would be a Christian today if it were not for the Christians. Wow, what an indictment. Outward forms of religion when Jesus wants to change our hearts. And here's how you know if you got religion instead of a relationship. If you right now during this sermon are thinking about going fishing this afternoon, you've got religion. If you go fishing this afternoon and you're thinking about Jesus on the boat, you got a relationship. He's in your heart. So come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He paid your debt and he kept the law so that you would be seen by the Father as righteous in God's sight. He gave you his righteousness that you can go right into heaven without worry or fear, but with great confidence that he's paid your penalty and suffered in your place. So come to Jesus. Receive the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit alone will allow you to begin to reflect the glory of God in the world. Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins. So, Father in heaven, please, dear God, uh, help us to be not religious people, but people of a relationship a personal walk with you. You want our hearts, and sometimes we give you our leftovers. Help us to make Jesus primary in our lives. Help us to make Jesus the person who is most important. Help us to receive the Holy Spirit with power so that we might be your children and reflect your glory in the world. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name.